are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Farzana Baduel, founder and CEO of Curzon PR, an ambassador and resident PR expert for the Oxford Foundry at the University of Oxford's Entrepreneurship Center. Good afternoon, Farzana. It's brilliant to have you today as a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get started. So can you give us a quick introduction to who is Farzana? God, I guess I am a mum and a wife, and I also run a PR firm called Curzon, and British, Asian, married to an Italian, love diversity, live diversity. And I love being a communications bridge between different cultures. So segueing from that, how important is your identity to you? I think my identity, it shapes what I do. So sort of being brought up in two cultures, the South Asian culture and the British culture, it just innately made it quite intuitive to work not only within the British and the South Asian culture, but to work with lots of other cultures. Because I think when you sort of straddle two cultures growing up, you have the ability to have that sort of level of empathy of being an outsider. And that really helps to build bridges, build trust. And I find my sort of identity as a British Asian has massively helped me, not just straddling these two worlds, but straddling multiple worlds and most importantly, connecting worlds. Yeah, that's so true, actually. I think being an outsider, you have that empathy that comes in building. And that must really stand you in good stead. So why did you become an entrepreneur and set up Curzon PR? So as a community, I think we're entrepreneurial, but not sure if women are as entrepreneurial. I think I was quite lucky because my maternal grandfather was a huge sort of feminist. And he used to always say to his daughters, my mother and my aunt, education is really important and career. So do not stop at just the education. So in Pakistan, he had five daughters and he was a huge sort of proponent of women working, women in the workplace back then in Pakistan. So I think that sort of really percolated throughout our family. So growing up, my mother was well-educated. My aunts had businesses in Pakistan. My mother had businesses. And so I grew up where women in leadership positions, be it a small business, a large business, freelance, it was the norm for me. So for me, I kind of almost aped the women who are in my family. And But what I really admire is actually those women out there who set up businesses who didn't have those role models in their family. I think those women should be celebrated because women like me, actually, I had role models growing up. So it was something that growing up, it just nurtured me into believing that is also a path that I can easily take. That's such a beautiful backstory because I don't think people often hear these stories about our mothers or parents or sisters or wives doing a lot beyond the home. So it's good to hear about that. And how has this entrepreneurial journey been? Could you share some learnings from the journey? 
Sure. Well, I left university after my second year. So at the age of 20, I set up my first business, which was a tax business. And I ran it for around 10 years. And then the PR business I've been running for about 13 years. And I would say that actually the tax business was fairly straightforward and easy. I think also because it just came naturally to me. I was good at mathematics. I was good at processes. And so the tax business was relatively easy for me to run and do well in. I'd say the PR firm was a massive struggle, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I think it took me about 10 years to really understand and feel confident about being a PR person because I set up the firm foolishly without ever working in PR before. And I thought I was just being brave. I think in hindsight, I was just a bit foolhardy. So it was incredibly difficult. It was like the blind leading the blind. I think if I could turn back the clock, I would have worked in other agencies. But I was always scared about, would I be able to get a job in an agency back then? Because I had an accounting background. And also I had a one-year-old daughter. I sort of thought to myself, well, actually, let me just set up a business in this world and learn it as I go because I didn't feel I had opportunities to get into agencies back then. So that was sort of the rationale behind it, but incredibly hard, massive sort of imposter syndrome. I'd almost talk myself out of contracts. And that's not really helpful in sort of revenue growth. And I think that it took me about a solid 10 years off which I'd spend weekends, holidays, reading up about PR. I'd read lots of PR books and blogs and podcasts, and I would just consume everything. I think I stopped feeling like an imposter when Oxford asked me to be their resident PR expert at the university. And I thought, okay, maybe I do know something about the craft. Yeah. Finally, you got the validation from outside that, (laughs) no, actually, you don't need to worry about anything. Yeah. I think when you have imposter syndrome, the pursuit of external validation is really important. But I think I'm now at that stage where I don't need that external validation anymore. There's an innate confidence that I have, but it's taken me so long to get there. No, but it's very graceful of you to admit the journey that you went through. And you were right in thinking that 2009, who would be giving you a job person of color. I think it was even tougher at that time. I was in the industry at that time and it was such a struggle. So probably a good direction, a lot of learning, but a good direction to follow for you. You were brave. So moving on, we live in a world very different from one year ago, two years ago, three years ago. Everyone has had to adapt and change and so has the PR industry. What do you think has been the impact on the industry? The good and the bad probably? I think the good has been that there has been a lot more agencies that have cropped up. People have felt a lot more confident to start up PR firms because the barriers of entry is much lower. Because before you'd have to have money to buy an office space. And now because there's a remote model that's become acceptable culturally in the world of business, there's been a lot more people who are able to set up their own business in the PR industry. And I think that's been really positive because it's just lowering the barriers of entry, which I think is a good thing. I think the second is, again, because remote work is increasingly acceptable. What's happened is that there's a lot more people with caring responsibilities who are looking after the elderly or children or sick relatives. They are able to sort of manage their caring responsibilities as well as work. And before it used to be very binary. It was like, like you're either going to be a carer or you're going to have a career. And now actually you can have that third path where you can still have a career. And also I think PR can be very London-centric. So what's wonderful again about remote work is the PR industry doesn't have to be so London-centric. PR firms can hire people from other parts of the UK. And that levelling up agenda that was part of the sort of government's narrative can really take place through remote work. So I think that's the good side. I think the bad side is that 
there's been a lot of uncertainty. It's led to a lot of anxiety. I've seen a lot of spike in mental health issues and how to sort of balance this new way of working with ensuring that people are also feeling supported, but at the same time, the productivity is also there. So trying to find a balance between ensuring that the culture is supportive in the workplace as well as productivity, because there's often sometimes a balance between one or the other. And no one has it right. I think we are still on the learning journey and we'll have to adapt and change and then see what works best. So something that's been in the conversation a lot in the last two years that comes is on the board now. It has a seat at the table. Do you think the time has finally come? Very much so. I think also because as we've sort of moved from the emphasis on the state of being the customer to sort of stakeholder capitalism, the stakeholders are not just the customer in terms of priority, but also the internal stakeholder, the employee, as well as government, journalists, communities, suppliers. And because of stakeholder capitalism, it's sort of really brought PR professionals to the fore. Because before it was often, if you saw somebody in the board, they have a marketing background, because of course, customer was king. But now actually multiple stakeholders are king and queens. And consequently, the PR people are the ones who navigate stakeholders. And so they are the ones that actually increasingly are needed at board level in order to spearhead the strategy, as well as identify these sort of strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats, which PR people are naturally horizon scanners. We're always looking at context. And increasingly because of risk and geopolitical strife and us moving towards a multipolar world, Horizon scanning is increasingly important. And I think CEOs and chairs of boards are beginning to realize that actually PR people hold the skill set of horizon scanning, identifying risks, managing risks, crisis communications, building reputational resilience around the organization. And the fact that reputation is an asset on the balance sheet that needs to be protected. And that's where I think PR people are becoming increasingly sort of more in demand. And we're moving away from the old way of thinking on boards where they used to just have a marketing person on but understanding that other stakeholders also communications with them need to be managed. True. I think change is finally happening and it's change for the good. It's just a question of comes folks stepping up to the opportunity now, I guess. There's conversations around equity and inclusion that all started with the unfortunate killing of George Floyd. Everyone got onto the bandwagon, right? Everyone was talking about their inclusion and inclusiveness and how they had great cultures. But do you think that clients Campaigns can really stand scrutiny for diversity washing. What would your advice to clients be? Because I still see people stepping up and talking about it because everyone else is speaking about it, but they don't really have something that is strategic or embedded in the organization for it to be meaty enough to speak about. I think that's why it's important to have people of color in the decision-making room, because when they come up with the ideas for the diversity inclusion campaign, it's more likely that somebody, an ethnic minority, can say, hold on, you can't just basically do diversity washing. What is actually the experience of an ethnic minority within your organization as an employee? And really try and remind them that there shouldn't be that wide gap between perception and reality. Whatever you communicate about your organization on the outside really has to authentically connect with what it's really like on the inside. And I think there's obviously been a lot of greenwashing, a lot of diversity washing. I think the fact is that millennials and Gen Z they care passionately about these subjects, but also they are not stupid. They are incredibly savvy. And I think what they hate more than anything 
is actually hypocrisy. And there are a lot of organizations that lack self-awareness, that don't understand how to approach diversity and inclusion, that feel that just by putting a disproportionate amount of ethnic minorities in their advertising campaign, that means that they are sufficiently woke in order to be able to speak to their target audience. And they don't understand that this generation, they will go on the website, they will look at the leadership team, they will have a look and see what diversity do you have in the senior leadership team. They will take into consideration the sort of lived experience of the ethnic minorities working within that organization. I think they've got to be extremely careful. They've got to make sure that they are aligned internally. And it's almost better to sort of really under-promise, over-deliver when it comes to diversity. So really, I think also to be vulnerable and say, what? We recognize that we need to do better. We're not there yet. This is the path that we're going to follow. This is how we're going to measure ourselves. And we're going to be transparent in our reporting. And if we fall short, we will let you know. And we will have a contingency plan on how to bring us back in line with where we want to get. And I think sharing that journey, because nobody expects organizations to change overnight. But really having that sort of transparency, that sense of humility and that sort of under-promising and over-delivering, I think what really builds that trust in organization. Yeah, because I think what organizations think is that they have to be the best version of them in terms of a brand sort of glossy, glitchy. Nobody is like fully finished product. So I think it makes sense to be transparent about the journey rather than just trying to say something and then get called out for it, which has huge reputational risks and risks to the business. Something else that has been much in the conversation in the past two years, purpose. Purpose versus or and profit. One has recently become a buzzword. Do you think all this talk about organizational purpose is sort of distracting people from doing the main job which a lot of people still believe is for businesses to make profits. I think what's happened now is, I think down to stakeholders before what used to be very much focused on the shareholder. And now actually it isn't. That's the harsh reality. And the reality is that actually employees is as important, if not more than the shareholder, because ultimately business cannot really survive without employees. And so what's happened is I think that public feel more empowered because they are able to communicate through social media. They're able to really create sort of coalitions and campaigns together on Twitter, for instance. So I think people are more empowered, which means people are sort of forcing organizations, I think because they perhaps feel let down by governments, that they're thinking, well, actually the governments really haven't delivered. We don't really trust them to deliver. And the only mechanism as a public to make change is through businesses because at least they know how to get things done. But we need to just direct them into the areas that we care about, which is not profits, but obviously they understand that businesses need to be sustainable, but they care about planet and people. And that's where I think we're getting much better frameworks like the ESG framework in order to ensure that we hold companies to account. So I think we're very different than the sort of greed is good mantra of the 80s. And that's perhaps the philosophy I think that makes a lot of hardcore capitalists feel quite nervous. But I think at the same time, we are dealing with some existential threats around climate change, the sense of inequality between the haves and the have-nots are widening. I'm a capitalist, but I think fundamentally it's a good thing to look at profits as well as people, as well as planets, because a lot of costs in the P&L accounts of businesses are environmental costs that haven't been captured. And the harm that they are doing to the planet as well as to communities are not there in the P&L accounts. So I think the reporting around the companies 
it's good that the ESG element is brought in because polluting rivers, you don't see that harm and expense of dust to the environment on the PL. I think we're moving towards this sort of purposeful business, which is what we need at this stage of our humanity, our journey. It's an evolution, I'd say. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is something that we have to all start thinking about and start actioning and start working towards. So the definition of leadership, this is a question that I ask people a lot since I launched my podcast. The definition of leadership is constantly evolving, never more than in the past couple of years. How do you define leadership and what is your leadership style? I would say that I define leadership as the ability to articulate a mission and to help others along in their journey towards that mission. I would say that my sort of leadership style has massively changed. I think that in the early years of my businesses, I think, and it's quite blinkered, a bit of a hamster on a hamster wheel, just kept on working, very much immigrant work ethic that I inherited from my yeah. mom and dad, working seven days a week, extremely long hours. I would work throughout my holidays and I thought I was doing the right thing. And I thought the more hours I put in, the more successful that I would be and the better the business would be. I've been running business for about 25 years now. So I think only I had an epiphany five years ago. So 20 years of sort of running my business, I think was wrong because I just worked to death. As a result, I was grumpy. Yeah. I wasn't nice to work with. I was short fused. I was highly critical. I wasn't empathetic. And it was to do with my well-being because my well-being was low priority. I was always grumpy. And looking back, I thought, I just wouldn't want to work with myself. And just about five years ago, I thought, you know what? I want to actually stop working weekends. I want to stop working holidays. I want to be present for my family. I want to do walks in the park every morning with my dog. And I want to take holidays and weekends. And since I've done that, I've ironically started working normal hours. And consequently, I'm much nicer to work with. I like myself more. My staff retention has increased. I often get sort of, you know, positive compliments from my colleagues who are like, I really enjoyed working with you. Never had that before. And so I think actually the game changer for leadership for me has been if you take care of your own mental health and well-being and you don't work yourself to the ground, then you have much more capacity and energy for kindness. And I think kindness is that magic ingredient in teams that really build the foundations for high-performance teams. And it took me 20 years to get the kindness memo. And not just kindness to others, but kindness to yourself. Yeah, I guess it starts with kindness to oneself. But you are being open and honest and vulnerable and sharing this with others. And I hope others can share it because we all grew up in a different sort of age where what was important and how you worked and what was viewed as successful, what was the road to success was what you did uh, until you understood that, okay, no, my mental well-being is the most critical thing. Yes, I think it's taken all of us some learning. For some of who were your role models? Who were or are your role models? Gosh, I mean, I think I had different role models for different things. So Obama, I think he is such a wonderful role model in terms of his eloquence, his ability to orate and his ability to really give people a sense of optimism just through his oratory skills. I think he is absolutely incredible. I really admired Margaret Thatcher for being the first woman, for her political longevity, for her ability to really care about the country. Of course, she didn't get everything right and she got a lot of things wrong, 
she's human, she isn't a saint. But just to withstand that level of criticism and constant undermining as a woman, as a mother of twins, I just thought, what a woman. And so I admire these women politicians who are the first, because I think that the amount of criticism that that was leveled at them would have been a lot higher because of their gender. And they just, you know, pioneers through. On the same vein, Angela Merkel as well. These women in politics who have really been able to maintain their position, I think is extraordinary. And I would also say, actually, the people who are, you know, sort of role models are people who are in public service. So people who just devote their life to public service. I recently had a lunch with an old school friend of mine from secondary school, and she's a social worker. And she looks after between the age of sort of 16 to 18 who have issues with crime and the law and drugs and vulnerability. And she's literally just devoted her entire life. And that's all she does is look after them. And she takes the work home with her in the sense that mentally she cares, she worries about them. When I had lunch with her, I thought, God, what an amazing, amazing woman. And there are millions of them in public service or in caring responsibilities, be it nurses, be it people working in care homes. We have very hard jobs physically and emotionally and they get on with it. And what motivates them is not recognition or intellectual stimulation or money, but is actually walking the talk of genuinely caring for people. I find they're really inspiring and I'm not that person. I know that, but I admire them for it. What a beautiful story about your friend. That's so inspiring. Yeah, there are so many people who do such an incredible job in difficult circumstances with so many to actually take away, but they're still committed. And we have the last question. How would you end the sentence, I believe in? I believe in the potential for humanity. And that's in the positive sense. We've got huge amounts of challenges ahead of us, but I believe that we have it in ourselves to create the utopia that we are trying to create in terms of moving towards a world that is kind to the planet and kind to each other and bridging the gap between the haves and the have-nots. I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. And I think there's enough of us out there who care and who are moving into positions of power that can make that happen. That's such a wonderful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much, Farzana, for sharing your beautiful thoughts and experiences, for opening up for your humility. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure people will have a lot to take away. And I think it'll sort of show people that it's okay to be vulnerable uh, because something better comes out of it. Great. Thank you so much, Sadat, for having me on. Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.